morning <clears throat> starts in Genesis chapter 8 verse 15 and it goes through to chapter 9 verse 28. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground so that they can multiply the, on the earth and be fruitful and increase the numbers on it. And so Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark one after another. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, the seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. And then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and, in <clears throat> and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds of the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that, <clears throat> that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from, every, and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. For whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has made, has made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. And then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. And so God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark with Shem, 
Ham and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered across the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his brothers outside. <clears throat> but Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan, may Canaan be slave of Japheth. After the flood... Noah lived 350 years. And one verse from the New Testament from Luke 17 and verse 27. People were eating, drinking and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Alan. And hello again, everybody. Some years ago, I remember reading an account of a young and promising executive working in a significant organization, and uh, things were going well until a day where that sickly feeling came over him that comes over us where you know you've made a big error. A project he was directly responsible due to decisions he was directly responsible for and had made had cost the organization a little over $1 million. And so that kind of hot feeling you get and that uh, sense of dread came over him as he realised what was before him and he knew this was at best a career-limiting move but probably a career-ending move. Inevitably later in the day came the invitation to a meeting with the CEO. He was resolved and he knew what his future was so he went into the CEO and cap in hand he said, Sir, I'll spare you. I understand, I know what I've done, it's my fault. It was a great time to work here and uh, I, save me the speech, you don't need to tell me, I know my career is over. The CEO looked up at him and said, what are you talking about? Do you not realise I've just spent a little over a million dollars investing in your development and education? Get back to your office and let's sail into the future. Now, when you hear that story, you can't help but think, wow, I wonder what became of that guy's future. Man, he must have been loyal to that company, and how did things work out? What would the future look like? If that resonates with you, you're in a good space to think through the next part of our passage here, because this is quite like what is happening. God, you hear of a flood, and you might say, oh, such devastation. God has made a significant investment in the future. Remember, this is not the God of the ancient epics, who in a volatile mood destroys the world. This is a God grieved in hearts who wipes out wickedness, which grieves his heart of a world that who created? He created. Of a world that who loves it the most? He loves it the most. And so his heart is grieved, but he must act to preserve righteousness and stop 
the harm and the violence. His investment is that of a flood. To see the creation he loves and the lifeblood snuffed out of so many, that right living and righteousness might go on and the violence might cease. And so you come to the end of that investment and you think, so what will things look like now post-flood? Now that God's brought this flood, what will it look like with Noah and the new generation or the new world order? Well, I'm going to tell you, I think it will look something like this, and this is our big idea for today. We're going to see that old habits die hard, but God's covenant endures. It's ominous. Old, old habits die hard, and the habits haven't been good. But God's covenant endures. So let's take a peek at this. We come into this moment of coming off the ark, and we might call it creation version 2.0. You might recall last week I shared with you some of the commonalities between the days of creation and the days of the waters receding in the flood. We went from watery chaos to creation to God judging that creation and bringing it back to a decreation of watery chaos, and now again he is bringing creation version 2.0 and as Noah and his family are invited to come off the ark and you can imagine Noah calling his sons and calling his wife and by now you know Noah's wife's name Joan right Joan of Ark so so they're coming off the ark into what you might call the new world order. And as you read through chapter 8 and 9, I observe, this might not be exhaustive, but at least seven things that God speaks of how he wants his creation to function, what he wants this future post-investment to look like. Now, of those seven things, I realize that they fit into, into three categories. There is the animal stuff, the God stuff, and the human stuff. So let's take a look at these things that God has planned for how we would have things function. My first and fourth observations speak to the place of animals. They've moved from guest on the ark to a la carte. They've moved from being preserved and kept on the ark to now, and who knows, maybe people ate animals already, but for the first time, God is saying, I give them to you just as I gave you the vegetation to eat. They're food. What's God saying? Well, he's starting to explain the place of animals. You can imagine that when you've lived on the same salvation vessel for all these months and been saved in the exact same way, uh, Mr. Elephant might look at Mr. Human and sort of go, well, I guess we're, we're, we're brothers now. We're in the, we're in the same boat. Um, I don't know where I get it. Um, And there might be a confusion of the order in creation, but God, as he did in the beginning, says, no, no, humans will have dominion over the earth and animals are of a lower order of creation than humans. And he actually says, and I give them to you as food. Praise the Lord. But uh, he also says, you're not to eat them with their lifeblood still in them. And here is the tuning that we might want to do together. Whilst God says there's a difference between humans and animals in the creation order, he's not saying animals are irrelevant. Just as I gave you strawberries, I give you cows. But you can't eat them in the same way. 
You can walk past, grab a strawberry and eat it. You can't walk past a cow, hack its leg off, eat that with no concern for the cow. With its life still in it. Animals are precious to God, hence he saved them. Hence, when they came off the ark, he said to them, to the animals, multiply and fill the earth. They matter to him. And so God says, understand there is an order between humans and animals, and not the same, but animals are not just some commodity. They matter to me. They're my creatures. And so you should look after them as you take dominion. And it speaks into some of the the worldviews that are amongst us at the moment. Uh, If you're wrestling with concepts of veganism and things like that, and is it right to eat animals, I want to encourage you from the scriptures, have that guilt lifted. There is no guilt attached in eating an animal. So let that guilt be lifted. But let us thank veganism and some of the other movements for saying to us, be concerned and invested in how these food products from animals are produced. Because animals do matter to God. So let's tune a little bit in our conversations of how we approach eating animals. Totally good to do, gloriously yummy, but there's a responsibility when it comes to animals as well. Passages like this in God's design for the new order might also make us think about why or do you object to sports hunting? Animals matter to God. It might also cause us to reflect upon our attitudes in pet ownership. It's great to have a pet, but when we start to slip into the phrases like man's best friend and fur babies, have we started to become confused about the ordering of humans and the ordering of animals? And they are not the same. Humans come first. When we think about what we spend on pet food as opposed to the aid of those who are starving, we again might be sobered up in our thinking. I didn't say don't have a pet. I said let's have pets in the way that God might intend us to have pets. So God speaks about animals. He also speaks about himself. And the thing about he talks about himself is his enduring promise. We've come out of this great, this great flood, this great deluge, this great condemnation, and God uh, speaks of what he's going to be like going forward. Noah offers a sacrifice. It's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I've got to tell you a quick story. We don't have time, but I can't help it. I once said to my Old Testament lecturer at college when I was in my 20s, he was an Irishman, I said to him, hey, do you reckon God still likes it when I cook a barbecue? Like, do you reckon he still... I know that's not what the Bible's talking about. It says, ooh, that smells good at the Dirks' house. And I remember my lecturer just looked at me and he said, oh, Shane, I hope you're joking. (laughs) I wasn't. I was wondering. But, of course, this isn't about food. This is about an expression of that God will be satisfied. There's a sacrifice of atonement here. It's a whole burnt offering. And God demonstrates that he can be satisfied. He said... Well, that's good, but what happens next time you get mad? Well, God says, look, here's the thing. I'm going to limit my response from here on in. The Lord smelt the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again, this is verse 28, never again, verse 21, sorry, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. God says, I'm going to limit my response in this. 
And God says, that you might know the kind of limitations I'm putting on myself, that we might all see. Here's a sign of this promise or this covenant. I'm going to set my bow, not rainbow, he just says my bow in the clouds. And what's been observed by many of this, and this is a beautiful space where scripture and uh, natural or general revelation sort of comes together. When we see God's bow, what is a bow? It's a a weapon of war or hunting. And then when we observe what God has said in the natural world, we see the shape of the bow. And many have, uh, I think, rightly said, and here you see that when God hangs up his bow, it's pointed at himself rather than at the earth. The anticipation is that when God seeks the final sacrifice of atonement, it won't be shooting at animals, it won't be shooting at you or I, but he'll shoot at himself. And this is fulfilled in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. God says, let this be a sign that you might know the kind of God I am. I won't bring this destruction upon you, but I will pay a cost myself. And of course, in God's beauty, this bow is a rainbow a thing of beauty. No one gets tired of seeing rainbows, especially double rainbows. What does it mean? So, some have asked me during the week, more than one have said, I'm wrestling with the irony of God's rainbow, uh, of his covenant and how the rainbow is used today as a symbol that represents an ideology that uh, is rebellious against God and is counter God. What do we do with that? That's the kind of question I like. And so I reflected upon it and I thought, well, one response might be to get cross and mad and in a condemnation space and say, how dare you steal God's sign? You can do that. Another thing that occurred to me is whilst this is, this is taking a sign that God has given us and attaching it to an ideology that is counter God and rebellious to God, Look at God's response. Perhaps this is the very essence of it, that there is a rebellion to God in a particular space, and we all know what it it is to rebel to God. What does God do? Does he come out with a hammer blow of condemnation and another flood? No, in his patience and his grace, he is waiting. And in his command, he has called us to preach the good news of the gospel that all people, regardless of how they're rebelling against God, might repent, 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 turn around, come to him, put their faith in Jesus and be given new life and live a new life. And so regardless of where I see a rainbow, whether it's in the sky, on a t-shirt, on a flag or whatever, I'm going to let that remind me of the glory and wondrous grace of God who says regardless of the nature of your sin, regardless of the old habits that die hard, my covenant endures. And I'm asking you today to come to me to find salvation in me. So regardless of where you see a rainbow, I would encourage you, let that always point you back to God and the grace that is in him and the mandate that is upon us to share the good news of Jesus so that all people, regardless of what enslaves them, regardless of what our rebellion is, might be rescued and saved by the glorious God of the ark, who is the glorious God of Jesus. The passage also tells us something about the new world order and humanity. And as we move to humanity, verse 21, as God was speaking, sounds an ominous warning because it says, God says, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. 
God says, post-flood, I'm going to be different. I will limit my response, but my hunch, my knowledge is you're the same. Human hearts remain evil. Human hearts remain distorted. God is saying, old habits die hard, but my covenant will endure forever. And so as we learn about humanity here, we see some beautiful things from God. Before the flood, what did we see? We saw a world that was uh, wicked and specifically, we're told, had turned to violence. People were killing each other. Life was cheap. People were hurting and harming one another. But now God says, be fruitful and increase and have dominion over animals. Be fruitful and increase, and in case you didn't get it, he says it again in chapter 9, be fruitful and multiply. He really wants us to thrive. And in observation number 5, God also says, look, if someone gets killed, if their lifeblood is taken, I'll demand an account for that. Whether that's by someone else who murders them, or it's by an animal that just happened to gore them, it doesn't matter. To me, every human life matters, God says. Contrary to the wicked and violent world before God says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And right there in the middle, he says, because your lives really matter to me. You're made in my image. Every human life matters to me, God says. And again, it influences our ethics on how we think about human life, that we don't measure it against functionality, but that it's in the image of God and it matters. So race matters not. Age matters not. We think differently about euthanasia. We think differently about abortion. We think differently about sharing the world's resources that our greed wouldn't cause some to starve to death. For God's new world order, every life matters. And it's sad that he had to tell us that, but the pre-flood world kind of says, oh, we didn't realize in a sense we were violent and killing each other. So it says, I need you to know, be fruitful and multiply. Every life matters. Post-investment from God, contrary to a violent world of the pre-flood, God says, I value life immensely and I want to see it thrive. So now we go, all right, so what's going to happen? Will it thrive? How will this work out? The truth is, how will it work out? I'll warn you in advance. Old habits die hard, but God's covenant endures. So now we meet Noah again. It's almost like a reintroduction to Noah in chapter 9, verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil. Oh, really? Didn't actually know much about Noah. I knew he built a boat and he was a righteous guy and was very busy for the last hundred years. So, Noah, what do you do on your day off? I love gardening, says Noah. There's more to it. Because what we've got here, we've talked about creation version 2.0. I'm about to show you a, a few version 2.0s. Noah, a man of the soil, quite literally, Noah, a man of the Adamah, a man of the dust, a man of the soil, a man of the Adamah. Have you ever met a man of the Adamah before? Of course you have. You met Adam of Adamah, the earthling from the earth. And now once again, we're introduced to Noah, a man of the earth. Friends, what's before you is creation version 2.0 and what's before you is Adam version 2.0. We're looking at the first man again. And what does Noah do? Well, he plants a vineyard. What do we read? This is the garden version 2.0. We have God's man of the soil 
in a garden and what's going to happen. Well, a little flashback to version 1.0. When we first met humanity in the garden, uh, we found out that there were these rivers, which we all thought was a strange kind of thing all of a sudden to tell us about the geography of the garden. But more than just the geography of the garden in chapter 2, we were learning about a family tree expressed as a family river. We learned about the sons of Adam. Now, here's a trivia question for you. Don't call out because I don't want anyone to be embarrassed. But how many sons did Adam have? Some will respond, oh, it's two, Cain and Abel. Uh, yes, there's more. Some will respond, no, three, Cain, Abel, and Seth, after Abel got killed. There's three. No, 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 there's at least five. Because Genesis 5 verse 4 then says, Adam and Eve had more sons, plural, and daughters, unnamed. And just like the rivers that we learnt about, uh, some rivers we found out lots, some a little, some a little less, and some essentially nothing, we know about Cain, we know about Abel, we know about, a lot about Seth and his line coming, and there are just some others. The imagery here is that God's anticipation, his plan, is that there would be this grouping of four. The three named and the others. Let that sit in our mind as we read this story where we have been told mutual, uh, mutual, multiple times about being fruitful and multiplying, fruitful and multiplying, increasing in number. Right, we've heard those things, haven't we? And now we see Adam version 2.0 in the garden version 2.0 uh, with this hangover of the four rivers. And we know about Adam's sons, and now we think, well, where, where's Noah up to with this? Have you noticed how many times we've been told about Ham and Japheth and Shem? Three sons, three sons, three sons, three sons. You notice that keeps recurring throughout the story. Have you noticed the motif, be fruitful, multiply, be fruitful, multiply? Have you noticed that Noah's a righteous man who always does what God tells him to do, like building crazy boats in the desert? Let those things stick with you as we try to solve some riddles. Because old habits die hard. In creation version 2.0, we find Adam version 2.0. In a garden version 2.0, anticipating family version 2.0. And I've got to tell you, old habits die hard because we're about to eat fruit version 2.0. Just as Adam before him, Noah consumes of the fruit of his garden. Uh, he drank some wine. Some, he drank of the, of the wine. And just as for the first people, Adam and Eve, they consumed the fruit, but the fruit consumed them, and they were found naked. Noah consumes of the fruit, and in the most literal sense, we see the fruit consumed him he becomes drunk and he lay naked now note this word for naked has no shame attached to it it's just naked and he's naked in a really good spot i suspect everyone in the room was naked at some stage today if you did it outside in the park somewhere bad choice if you did it at home in your tent good choice i say good choice but he has been consumed by his approach to this fruit and he is now naked in his tent And now some encounter happens with his son, Ham. And we're going to have to do some hard work here to try and understand this. We're going to have to do some work. Let me read. Ham, the father of Canaan, from whom the Canaanites come, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside, 
But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so they did not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine, not just from his sleep, from his wine, and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. Now we'll pick that curse up in a moment. But what has Ham done? Well, you could say it's right there. He saw his father naked. Now, it's one thing to see someone naked. Surely when you live on a boat in cramped quarters for the last few months, you know, someone walked in on someone in the shower at some stage on the ark, who knows? There's no shame attached to the naked, that Noah was naked, but the word uh, that comes up of Ham seeing his father's naked, that does have shame attached to it. Different, different wording in the original language. And so commonly we might read this and say, oh, right, he's, he's looked on his dad in some kind of a perverted, dirty way and boasted to his brothers about it. And that's how I've read this passage for many years. But I've been challenged to think some more. I'm going to challenge you to think some more. Because when you read that, it's weird. This has been quite a delightful story of the of Ark family. And now you get middle child, goes weird, doing an odd thing. And you go, that's, that's, I don't like reading that. No one likes reading this. And it's weird in the story, isn't it? We want to find something that makes sense of the story. Well, many scholars and ancient writings, such as the Jewish Midrash, have said you need to understand what this actually means to have seen his nakedness. To have seen his father's nakedness is to perceive his father's nakedness or to know his father's nakedness. When I say to you, Adam knew his wife Eve, it doesn't mean he could pick her out in a lineup. He has intimate knowledge with her. He slept with her. And so some of these ancient writings and careful scholars have said, look, there's more than just voyeuristic looking going on here. This could be a sexual encounter. It's quite shocking, isn't it? But remember, we're coming out of a world that was so wicked and so violent that God flooded the whole thing. So we really should be reading with our safety belts fastened because old habits die hard. So one suggestion is perhaps that there was a molestation that took place here. Ham on his intoxicated father. Hurts our ears to hear, and I've got to say, it actually doesn't contribute much to the story either. There are many different ways people try to explain these, some very fanciful. This one's one of the stronger ones, but I don't think it's right. I've got to take you into something equally icky. The Midrash, and those scholars who have researched this language, go, it could be this idea of a sexual assault, or what could be happening here in knowing his nakedness might be an event of castration. And I've got to tell you, and I'll show you why I think this is what's happened. We have read a story that anticipates being fruitful and multiplying, fruitful and multiplying, increase in number, We've read of a man called Noah who has three sons. He is Adam version 2.0 and there's an anticipation that his line would continue. We've read of a man called Noah who always does what God tells him to do. He walks with the Lord. He's blameless. He's righteous. He builds a boat in the desert when it seems crazy. And when God tells Noah to be fruitful and multiply, do you not find it interesting 
that he does nothing about it. Do you not find it interesting that this passage ended with, and Noah lived another 350 years and died? No attempt at more children, because he couldn't have more children. His son, Ham, I know it hurts how he is, doesn't it? But it satisfies the story. It actually works in the story that his son, Ham, has actually reached out against his father's nakedness and prevented him from being the man God wants him to be, prevented him from being fruitful and multiplying. And finally, you might ask, so why does Noah curse Ham? This is huge. So why does Noah not curse Ham? He curses Ham's son. Well, this is retaliation. You have destroyed my heritage and those who would, descend, who would have descended from me. So now I curse your heritage and those who descend from you. We start to make sense of a lot of weird things in the passage. And I'm sorry. I know this is hard stuff to hear and difficult to process. But isn't it encouraging to have such an honest document from God that isn't afraid to go to weird places? When God said the world was wicked, he wasn't ashamed to shine a light on it. But the same God who does that, who knows old habits die hard, is the God whose covenant endures, endures. And this we'll, we're going to dig up in a moment. But you've got to ask the question, why would Ham do that? All right, likely story, what's the motive? Well, uh, why would he do it? Well, because old habits do die hard, and right throughout these first nine chapters of Scripture, we have seen people grasping to be first, to be number one. In the garden, you can eat whatever you like. Trust in God, but no, we will eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so we would be like God, and we will know for ourselves, we want to be the first, we want to be autonomous, we want to be independent. Uh, Cain and Abel come before God and Abel's sacrifice is received by God. Cain can't deal with God's judgment so he takes matters into his own hand and kills his brother that he might now somehow put himself in his brother's place and be the favoured one. We always want to be first. A man called Lamech boasts to his wives, a man injured me so I killed him and he boasts about it. He will know when you put your hands on Lamech you get killed because I'm number one. This is the nature and the habit of humanity to want to be number one and we all know this lives in us. God declares it lives in us in chapter 8 verse 21 that from our youth hearts are wicked. What is wicked? When we put ourselves first and love ourselves disproportionately as all these people do. So Ham now sees his dad, Adam, Noah, poised to be the Adamic figure, the one from whom the world will be populated, from whom the four rivers will run, not satisfied to be one of those rivers, he stops his dad, takes matters into his own hands, and maybe, maybe, best case scenario, looks at his brothers and says, boys, now it can be us. Worst case, looks at his brothers, almost like ancient princes trying to grab the throne and goes, right, who's man enough? I will be the man. Old habits die hard, but God's grace, God's covenant endures. Well, Noah responds. Noah, awakening from his wine, curses his son. And this language of curse, uh, the scholars point out to me, is language that is never found on human lips again in the Bible. Noah speaks like he is God, 
And I'm sorry, but Noah, the righteous and blameless man, now we see even in him, old habits die hard. He's gone too far. Noah now seeks to be the arbiter of all that is right. Noah now seeks to be the judge. Noah now speaks as if he were God and the same disease lives in Noah. He goes too far and speaks like he's God as he pronounces this curse. Old habits die hard, but even in the curse will you see God's covenant endures. Noah curses, goes too far, sins, does the wrong thing, but God brings salvation through it. Here's what Noah says. He says, curse will be uh, Canaan, the lowest of slaves he will be to his brothers. And we will read on in the scriptures and in, well, even modern history, that there will be enmity between the Canaanites, the people of that land, and someone else. The cursed Canaanites, you know, you know that name well. He also said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. From Shem will come Abraham. From Abraham will come Jacob, Israel, the people of God. Here's the blessing that God will have a people for himself. He's not going to just destroy everyone. God will have a people for himself. Their name is Israel. And then of Japheth, he says, He says, may God extend Japheth's territory. This is where the Gentiles come from. And this territory is in fact very much extended because this is kind of like the rest. But Japheth, despite being such a great territory, will live in the tents of Shem. The Gentile will find refuge, will find salvation, will find hope in the Lord Jesus, Israel's Messiah, the descendant of Shem. Noah went too far because old habits die hard, but God's covenant endured where there would be hope for the descendants of Shem and the descendants of Japheth. There is hope for us. And this is the warning of Jesus in his time. He speaks to people in his time before he goes to the cross. When he describes himself as the son of man, he's speaking of his earthly ministry. And he says, in this time, just as it was in the time of Noah, people are going about doing their own thing. They want to be the man. They want to be in control. But they're missing. They're not looking to me and what I'm about to do, which is bring salvation, not through an ark, but through the cross. You've got to look away from yourself, everyone. Look to yourself. Hey, Pharisees and religious leaders, look away from yourself and look to me. Hey, political leaders leaders. Herod, look away from yourself and look to me. Hey, scoffers, stop trying to be funny or empowered or popular and look to me. Jesus is saying, hey, old habits die hard. People keep looking to themselves and doing what they want to do and living their own life. But please hear that God's covenant endures and I am here to fulfill it and bring salvation to all who will look away from themselves. This is called repenting and look to me. And so today, today if you hear his call to repent, don't harden your heart. Today is the day to look away from yourself what you have done and what you could do and simply look to Jesus and find his salvation. Maybe today, brother, sister, if you're walking with Jesus and you're like, yes, but I keep getting stuck in the same old habits, please press on because old habits, they die hard, but God's covenant endures and he will receive you again. Every time you come back, just keep coming back. Keep coming back. Today, be encouraged that God's covenant can endure over any of those old habits that we're still trying to put to death. God's covenant endures. 
and of the many things we could say from this wonderful part of Scripture, that is what I wish you would hear today. Old habits die hard. We have seen it. We know it. The hearts of humans are wicked. But God's covenant endures. He promises salvation. He brought it to Noah in an ark, and he offers it to the whole world in his son, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our gracious heavenly Father, we thank you that despite the nature of our old habits, our continued dysfunction, our continued sin, our continued rebellion, your covenant endures. You've set a sign in the clouds that you don't destroy us, but you offer us a sacrifice of atonement in your son, that all who turn to him might be saved and that you will find this a pleasing aroma. You are satisfied. Oh, Father, we pray that you might lead us now, whether for the first time, for the 50th time, to turn away from ourselves, to not trust in ourselves, to not make ourselves Lord of our own life, to not be selfish, but instead to trust in you and humble ourselves in repentance to know that you are the good God who wants to lead us into good places and who wants to know us in your Son that we might live with him and with you for eternity. We pray in his name. Amen.